0: Well, good morning, church. We're continuing in our study in the book of Hebrews. And uh, today we come to Hebrews chapter 12. And I would guess that for some of you, even as we sort of read that together, it might do something funny to your stomach. All this talk about discipline, uh, it might make you cringe a little bit. We're not necessarily a culture that likes discipline. And sometimes when we think about discipline, we think about it in terms of punishment. You know, it always sort of seems like uh, it it sort of is tempered with... um, Bad feelings and resentment, and a little bit of shame and guilt. And in the context in which we find this particular section, it's actually very interesting. If you were with us last week as we were looking at the first few verses in chapter 12, remember that that the writer, inspired by the the Holy Spirit, has moved from, you know, simply sort of teaching us information, and he's moved to this imperative place now where he's calling us to move. He's calling us to act. And so last week, if you were with us, you'll remember there were four kind of key things he says. He says, first, in the race that you're running, be sure that you strip away all the things that would be a hindrance. Anything that would entangle you, the sin that would entangle you, get rid of anything that would get in the way. He says, then make sure you've got this ongoing, progression or a stride. Make sure that you're moving towards the goal and that as you move towards the goal and the race that God set before you, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't look at the path behind you. Don't look at the road in front of you. Don't look at the other people that are on the path with you, but keep your eyes focused on Jesus. And then it said, consider him who endured such hostility from other people so that you in your pursuit will be able to endure. Remember the writer of the Hebrews is saying again and again, endurance is the key. We can't quit too quick. we got to keep going on the race that God has called us to. And then here in verses 5 through 11, he says, and also in addition to stripping away the hindrances and focusing on Christ and running the progression, he says, don't forget, don't forget the exhortation that speaks to you as children. And then he goes into this quote from Proverbs that talks about the discipline of God, and he kind of explains that for us. It's easy for us to sort of set aside this idea of discipline and sometimes to be overwhelmed by it, because a lot of times discipline is uncomfortable, right? A lot of times correction or realignment is uncomfortable. I I remember um, a time when my oldest son, Jack, was really little. He was like two or three. He was still small enough that he was in a car seat, and um we had gone to Nevada for, for Thanksgiving, and uh, we were out there, and we were in the car one day, my wife and I were in the car, and my son Jack was in the car seat in the back seat, and we were listening to music. I, I listen to a lot of music, and some of the music I listen to is what you would probably consider beautiful, and some of the music I listen to is kind of noisy, and, and in particular, there are a few bands I like where the, the singer doesn't so much sing as kind of yell right so we 're listening to that kind of music, and my wife looks at me in the car and she says, "Would you please turn off this racket she 's like it 's so loud and that guy's not even singing. He's like screaming. And I said, this is not, this is not a problem with the music. It's not that the music is no good. It's that you are an old lady. And then I actually, I, uh, I turned the music up a little bit louder. Right. And, uh, you see, you, you guys think that that's troubling. I thought that was fine. Um, We go to the bank. We go to the bank, and my wife gets out of the car. She goes up to the ATM, and when she goes up, she closes the door. I'm sitting in the car with my with my little guy. I mean, he's just a teeny little guy at the time, and I hear this little voice, and he goes, "Daddy," and I can see him in the rearview mirror, and so I'm like, "Yeah," and he goes, "Daddy," so I turn the music down, like what? And he goes, "That wasn't very nice," and I'm like, "Come on!" Like I'm just I was just giving mom a hard time, and he goes dad, she asked you to turn down the music, and instead you turned up the music, and you told her she was old, and I was like, yeah, yeah, but I was just kidding with her, you know, like, that's what daddy's mommy said, we joke around, daddy likes to tease, I like to give mommy a hard time, and he goes, yeah, but dad, you said that we shouldn't tease the people that we love, and so I turned around, and I punched him in the face, uh, (laughs) Just to shut him up. No, I'm kidding. I didn't fudge him. But there's a part of me that kind of wanted to argue and like defend myself. You know, like I wanted to be like, "You're a three-year-old. You don't understand sarcasm and wit." I happen to be very witty, and I was being really funny at the time. Like I wanted to do that whole thing, but instead, what I realized is that like in that moment, my three-year-old was reading the thing correctly. You know, like he had he had spotted this rudeness in me, and so I changed the music. My wife uh, gets back in the car, and I'm like, "I'm really sorry," and she's like, "Are you okay?" Because I don't, I don't apologize a lot, you know? So uh, she was like, what's going on? I'm like, no, Jack and I talked about the music thing a minute ago, and I just, it was kind of rude. I'm really sorry, you know? So uh, I thought the thing was done and over with. The next day is Thanksgiving Day. We're, we're at my in-law's house, and uh, we're at this big table. So it's Jack and my wife and I, and uh, then, you know, aunts and uncles and cousins and my wife's brother and uh, her, her parents, and we're kind of doing that thing where you pass the plate, you know? So you pass your plate around, and you serve up whatever's in front of you. And my plate comes around to my mother-in-law, uh, Kathy, and uh, in front of her, she's got the broccoli casserole. Now, she makes this, um, she makes this broccoli casserole, but you got to know, like, I don't, I'm not really into mayonnaise, and I don't know what all's in the broccoli casserole, but for sure there's mayonnaise and maybe ground up dead body. So it's, a, uh, am not, it just, it's, it's like, I can't, I'm not going to be able to eat any of that casserole, you know? And so she goes, hey, Darren, would you like some of my famous broccoli casserole? And I was like, uh, no, I would not. It smells like you cooked it in an old sock. And, um, and just like this, you guys, my three-year-old is in a little high chair. He looks at me and he goes, Dad, remember what we talked about in the car? <laughs> you know, like every, uh, every head at the table kind of turns and looks at me. And I'm like, uh, you, you know, yesterday, Jack just had a conversation with me about how I need to be nicer. <laughs> and uh, so I'm trying. I'm trying, sorry, you know, it's just like so humiliating. I felt so embarrassed to be reprimanded by a three-year-old in front of my in-laws. You know, it's like the worst moment. And nobody likes that feeling. Nobody likes to be corrected. We don't like to be told that what we've done is wrong. We don't like to be, you know, pushed in a direction that maybe doesn't come natural to us. We like to be comfortable. In fact, we live in a culture that's kind of, these days, kind of built around the worship of comfort, And when something makes us uncomfortable, or worse yet, when someone makes us uncomfortable, we do our best to avoid those people. We don't like confrontation, we don't like arguments, we don't like disagreement. We wanna be comfortable and so the idea of correction or the idea of discipline is one for many of us that we would actually hold at arm's length. We don't wanna be disciplined. We wanna just sort of be allowed to live our lives. We wanna be embraced and loved for who we are and if you don't like who we are, then forget you, right? But don't come along and tell me ways I could be better or ways I could improve. That isn't the way our culture works. We're a culture that likes to be loved for who we are, and we don't want to hear two words about ways in which we could be improved. And so we come to a text like Hebrews 12, and the writer is saying, hey, it's important on this journey that you're running, this race you're running, that God has set before you, it's going to be important for you along the way not to forget... This exhortation, now the word exhortation is a weird one, it's like a kind of a bible word, I get that, but the word exhortation just means encouragement or consolation. The word exhortation actually means like verbal comfort. So the writer says, don't forget, don't lose sight on this journey you're running, don't lose sight or forget this exhortation, this encouragement from God who's speaking to you as sons and daughters who's speaking to you as children. And then he quotes from Proverbs chapter three. And here's, here's the quote. This is what he wants us not to forget. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. The writer of the Hebrews says it's going to be important that you keep before you this idea that God disciplines those he loves. Now, again, for many of us who, who live in this culture, the idea of discipline and love feel incongruous. They feel like they, never the two shall meet, right? If you love me, then you just sort of accept me, and you don't try and tell me to change, and you don't try and you know, correct my course You just embrace me the way I am. This idea of love and discipline don't feel like they go together. And what the text is saying is that that couldn't be further from the truth. That in the case of God, one of the ways in which he demonstrates his fatherly affection for us, his people, is by correcting the course we're on. By caring enough about us to correct the course we're on. That his discipline is actually a demonstration of his affection. That might be shocking to you. I mean, because again, for, for many of us, when we, when we come up upon people who want to correct us or who want to change, change who we are or want to kind of realign us, we tend to sort of avoid those people, right? You've probably met people or you have people in your life who've come alongside you and they said, hey, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to get in your face, but like maybe the way you're treating your wife, isn't that great? Or maybe the career plans you're making aren't really the best for you, or maybe the prioritization of physical appearance, or of collecting money, or maybe the prioritization of power, whatever. The way you're approaching your life feels like it needs to be honed a little bit. You may have people in your life that have come alongside and tried to correct you, and it's possible, based on, again, the world in which we live, and the way we tend to look at uncomfortability or correction, that you've actively worked to separate yourself from those people. If you got people in your life who are constantly trying to change you, maybe those are people that you avoid. The writer of the Hebrews here recognizes that on the, on the race that God has called us to run, there will be discipline that comes, and if we don't remember this exhortation, if we don't remember this encouragement, that that is a demonstration of God's affection for us, then there is a danger that we will become weighed down or that we'll become weary. He says in, in, verse, uh, in verse 5, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. If you don't remember that God's treating you like his child, then one of a couple things that can happen, there's Uh, there are several responses to discipline. There are several responses to discipline and the the easiest way I can think of to sort of paint the picture for you is living here in LA like we do, or close to LA, we deal with a lot of traffic and we deal with a lot of uh, traffic signs and cones and flashing streets. You know, you've been in traffic jams. Um, There there are always these things that say, you know, between April 5th and April 20th, this on-ramp's gonna be closed or this thing's not gonna work or the lanes are getting reduced or whatever. Those signs that are put up to try and effectively change our course are essentially trying to discipline us, right? It's not the kind of discipline that is a punishment, but it's the kind of discipline that is in an ongoing way trying to change our path, the path ahead. I want you to think for a second about what would happen if you were driving here in town and you saw a big flashing sign on the side of the road that said, warning, bridge out ahead, right? Flashing sign, warning, the bridge is out, right? I think there are several different ways you might respond, but there are certain ways that you certainly wouldn't respond, and yet sometimes those are the ways we respond to God. In God's discipline, what he's trying to do for us is to warn us about the ways in which the path we're on is perilous, or the ways in which the path we're on is contradictory to the purpose for which he created us. So God's discipline is in essence a flashing sign. So imagine you're driving and you see a flashing sign on the side of the road that says warning, bridge out ahead. What are you gonna do? I mean, for some people, just just the way they respond, there's kind of an ambivalence, right? Sort of an ignorance. They just sort of wanna turn a blind eye to it. They wanna go, oh, that sign's probably not for me. These other suckers here on the freeway, maybe they have a problem with an outbridge, but that's not, I'm just gonna keep doing my thing. I mapped this on Google Maps. I plugged it into Waze already. I'm just gonna keep going. The sign, I'm just gonna ignore it because it's probably not true. They probably forgot to put it away. There are some people who would look at a sign like that and completely ignore it. They've sort of trained themselves not to pay attention to the correction. I think sometimes that is our response to God as well. There are times in our lives where God is trying to go, hey, there's a better way to go. Or the course that you're on leads to destruction. Or the course that you're on leads to pain and sorrow and grief. Change your course. And I think sometimes we stop up our ears. We don't want to hear it. That's why James is so clear to say, you know, don't look into the mirror of God's word and immediately forget what you see there. But look into his word and change the things that he says to you. We don't want to be ambivalent. We don't want to be ignorant. We don't want to just block God out. But I think sometimes we don't want to listen to God because we don't like what he's telling us. Because as God tries to correct, and as God tries to position us, we wanna go our own way, we wanna do our own thing. And so there is a tendency for us sometimes to treat the warning signs of God, to treat the discipline of God with ignorance. I think there's also sort of a a thing that happens sometimes where people, uh, it would be like driving, and you see the sign that says bridge out ahead. Some of you might respond in this way. You see the sign and you go, oh no. What a hard life I have. I chose a road on which the bridge is out, and now I'm gonna die, right? What can I do? It's like, well, it's not the only option to keep going that way. No, I chose this road, and I'm sticking with it, and it's going to be hard until I'm dead. You know, I call, these people, um, I call these people Christian Eeyores, right? You've met them from Winnie the Pooh? You walk up to a person like this, and you go, hey, how are things? And they're like, not very good. And you're like, oh, I'm really sorry I asked, right? And I sort of wish I dodged you today, you know? There are these people who, who respond to God's correction and reproof the guidance that he plugs into our life with so much self-pity and so much feeling sorry for themselves, but they don't correct their course. It's just a way to feel bad. Elijah is a good example of that, right? You guys maybe know the story of the prophet Elijah. There's a period in Elijah's life where he's being persecuted and attacked by Jezebel and Ahab, and he goes out into the wilderness, and he sits under a tree, and he goes, I'm the only one who loves God, you know? And God's like, well, you know, I don't want to be a stickler here, but technically, I got like 800 people who are still following me, but you know, for the record, you're dead wrong, you know? And Elijah's like, but it's hard, you know? It's just the same kind of thing. Sometimes, if we don't remember this exhortation that's speaking to us as sons, that's reminding us that the presence of God's discipline is a demonstration of his affection for us, then maybe what happens is you start to feel sorry for yourself when God tries to course correct. Sometimes we we treat God's discipline with ignorance or apathy. Sometimes we treat God's discipline with self-pity and sorrow. I think probably most common is that we treat the correction of God or the discipline of God with anger. Right? Can you imagine seeing the sign on the side of the freeway that says, warning, bridge out ahead, and your response being like, oh yeah, Caltrans, you think you can tell me what to do? I'm gonna drive where I wanna drive, and if I die, I'll be happy to die, and then I'll sue you afterwards, you know? And you're like, it doesn't make sense. You can't, that's not gonna work. You're gonna die, you know? Pedal to the metal. Don't you try and tell me what to do. I meet a lot of people like this we are in response to the discipline of God, in response to the God of the universe caring enough about them to try and help them steer their course they shake their fist at the sky and they go, who do you think you are to tell me what to do? Why doesn't this feel better? Why are you answering my prayers? Why haven't you answered all of the things I've told you to do? And so the response to the discipline of God is with anger resentment or rebellion. I think sometimes in our lives, if we forget this exhortation, what happens is we respond one of these ways. But there's a fourth option. There's a better option in responding to the discipline of God. The, f- the fourth option is to respond with gratitude. And you might go, respond with gratitude for discipline? Like, how does that work? God's correcting my course? Well, the text is really clear that there's a very very good reason why he disciplines us. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You see, as opposed to just sort of wanting to be left alone, there is the ability to look at the discipline of God and embrace it as it refines you, to embrace it in gratitude and joy because it's a demonstration of God's affection. Imagine, uh, imagine paying for piano lessons, right? Right? and you go to your first lesson with the piano teacher, you you do all the Yelp reviews, you find the best piano teacher, you go, you pay the money for the piano lesson, and you sit down at the lesson, and the piano teacher says, hey, you know what, just sit down at the keyboard there, and just have fun with it, you know, just do what you're gonna do. You'd be like, well no, I, I mean, I actually want you to teach me how to play. Oh, you don't need me to teach you anything, just bang around, get your fingers out and go to town, I'm sure you'll come up with something pretty. And so you start to bang, and the teacher's just like, yeah, I love this. I love what you've decided to do. I don't have anything to add. I've got nothing to, t- to change. Your technique is really weird, if, if there at all, but you know what, just good for you, man. You've learned how to play the piano. Thanks for the check, right? Can you imagine going to a gym, right? Which some of you probably aren't imagining that, but if you, if you were to go to a gym and you sign up to, you know, you pay the money to get a personal trainer, you don't want the personal trainer to look at you and go, I don't think we can improve upon what's already going on with you, bro. Like, this is pretty good. Like, why don't we just leave well enough alone? You look awesome. No, it's not what you want. You go into a personal trainer because you want them to go, we got a lot of work to do, you know? There are a lot of things we need to do. And you know what? That process of being trained by the, by the, the, the trainer at the gym is one of kind of humiliation, right? There are moments when the trainer asks you to push beyond what you think you're capable of that are kind of embarrassing, There are moments where he looks at you and says, you know what, there are lots of things you've got to do differently, but we willingly embrace that. Why? Because we trust the one who's disciplining us. We willingly embrace the correction of the piano teacher because we trust that the piano teacher knows more about that endeavor than we do ourselves. God knows more about your life and how it's intended to be lived than you do, and yet so often when God is saying, no, there's a better way. I have more for you. I've created you for more than this. The bridge is out ahead. So often we feel sorry for ourselves or we try and stop up our ears or we shake our fists at the sky when the fourth option, the best option is to say, look at this, God is treating me as his son or his daughter. You see, that's what's beautiful about this text. It says that it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as Sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I remember when I was a kid uh, in the church we grew up and they used the King James Bible and my friends and I really liked this verse because there's a bad word in it in the King James, right? And it was always really funny to find the bad words in the Bible because if there's a bad word in the Bible, you're allowed to say it. Like your parents can't get mad at you, right? If it's in the Bible. So in the King James version of this, it, it actually uses the word bastard. <laughs> It says bastard in the Bible. I'm like, sorry, mom. I can say bastard if I want because it's in the Bible. What's what's it saying here? It's saying that the presence of God's discipline is proof that you're an authentic son. And the reverse of that is absolutely true as well. There's a warning in Hebrews chapter 12, and it's this. If you don't experience the discipline of God, if you don't experience that course correction, if you don't experience that exhortation and encouragement to change your ways, then you are illegitimate sons and not true heirs. If you're the kind of person in this room who spent some time, you know, sort of that existential moment standing in front of the mirror going, am I truly a believer? Am I really a follower of Christ? Have I really surrendered my life to Christ? Like how how can I know? One of the ways you can know whether or not you're a child of God, whether or not you're a true follower of Christ, is by the presence or the absence of his discipline and correction. God disciplines those he loves. If the discipline of God is present in your life, that is proof of your daughtership. It is proof of your sonship. And so it's not a badge of shame, it's a badge of honor. I'm God's child as is proved by the fact that he doesn't just let me drive my car off the broken down bridge, but he tries to turn me around. He tries to call me to repentance, which is reversal. If you're here this morning and you've never experienced the discipline of God, if you've never experienced his correction, then according to this text, you have some serious soul searching to do. If you've never experienced the discipline of God, it's worth taking the time to ask yourself whether or not you've truly trusted in him because he disciplines those he sees his sons, those that he's adopted into his family. So what does that discipline look like? I mean, that's probably part of the question. Is like, okay, well, what are we we talking about with regard to discipline? What does that look like? Well, the Bible's very clear about the fact that the the, the discipline comes in different ways, but one of the clearest pictures of the discipline of God we see uh, listed in in 2 Timothy chapter three. In 2 Timothy chapter three, it says uh, in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I think sometimes when we think about God's Word, we think, oh, there's really inspirational stuff there, or there's really interesting doctrinal things that need to be sort of pondered and untangled. This is a really great educational tool. But what that verse tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is that God uses His Word to reprove us, to correct us that should absolutely sort of put a light bulb on over your head and say, I I have to be in God's word. I have to be studying God's word. I need to be rooted in the scriptures because the scriptures are profitable for this correction and reproof that is evidence of my sonship or my daughtership. It's not about just reading the Bible for the sake of reading the Bible, but God speaks to us through his word. And his word is valuable for correction and reproof. You know, Proverbs actually gives us a pretty stern warning as well. Proverbs talks about the fact that when we turn a blind eye or when we walk away from his teaching, that it is possible that God will take that reproof away. It says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 23, God says, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, i stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices yikes that's a heavy verse that's a heavy passage what's God saying there in my affection for you, because you're my children, I'm going to try and help you course correct. I'm going to help refine you into the people that I created you to be. And as long as you listen to my discipline, you will progressively become more and more like me, glorifying me in your thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. But in those moments where I've called out to you in, in my love and my discipline, and you've pushed my hand away, or you've stopped up your ears, or you've shook your fist... There is a point where if people have despised my reproof, I will stop reproving them, and I will let them fill their bellies with what they think they want. What they think they want. What is it that we think we want? Well, we think we want comfort. We think we want to be sort of left alone to play the piano the way we want to play the piano. We think we sort of want to be loved for who we are and never corrected or disciplined at all. God says, if you continue to slap my hand away, if you continue to plug your ears when I call you to something more... There is a point where I will stop doing that. If you ignore the sign on the side of the road that says bridge is out, there's a point where I'm going to stop putting those signs up and I'm just going to let you drive off the bridge because that's what you're asking me for. We have to be really careful, you and I, that we don't forget this exhortation that reminds us we're his sons and his daughters, that he disciplines us as an expression of his love for us. So part of the way that discipline happens is through his word, and we have to be attentive to it. We have to pay attention. Another way in which that discipline occurs is through community, right? And, and this happens in both negative and positive ways. One of the ways in which God disciplines us is through the voices of our family. And I don't just mean our, our physical, earthly family, but I mean the community of believers. There's something so great about gathering together and having other people who love Christ and are loved by Christ who can look into my life and go, hey, Darren, I think you're missing the mark here, little buddy you know what, I I think you're lacking humility in these areas, or you know what, I think in these areas you become a little greedy, or I think you become jealous, or I think you're unforgiving, or I think, you know, whatever it is. It's so incredible to have other people around me who can speak into my life. God corrects me and disciplines me through the godly voices of my peers. The people around me who would care about me enough to speak, God uses that. I don't want to plug my ears to that. I don't want to push those people away, Or, or just find, you know, people that will say the things I want them to say. It also says in 2 Timothy, in a different passage, that there's a day coming when people will only be interested in hearing what they want to hear. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 3 says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. One of the great ways that God can discipline us is through the voice of other people. But there sometimes is a temptation for us to just accumulate the voices of those who'll tell us what we want to hear instead of what we need to hear. So it happens in a positive way in community, but you know, it also happens in a negative way in community. The, the context of Hebrews chapter 12, the writer is speaking to a church there that's been persecuted that's been oppressed, people who've been punished and hurt because of their faith. And what the writer is saying is that that punishment, that wickedness that's being poured upon you that has nothing to do with your choices, but has to do with the actions of evil men and women who are oppressing you, God can use that to discipline you as well. That God can use the poor choices or the the bad choices of other people, their hatred and vitriol and anger, to actually steer the course of your life as well. That God can redeem that that God can redeem it. It says in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 verse 3 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. What's it saying? That even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of the oppression that can sometimes come, that because of the way the Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts, even that suffering can be a manifestation of God's love in that it it aligns us and that it reshapes us, it transforms us. You know, in the midst of that, in the midst of that suffering, sometimes it's hard to recognize it as the discipline of God, right? It's not until years later. In hindsight, in hindsight, it's easy to look back and go, oh man, that season of my life that was so hard that season of my life that was so difficult, there was so much pain and so much hardship, God was using that to discipline me, not to punish me, but to discipline me, to correct me, to reprove me. And I'm grateful for it in the past. When you're in the midst of the suffering, sometimes it's hard to to be open-handed and recognize God can redeem this. God will redeem it. That's who he is. But the discipline of God comes through his word. It comes through other people. And then it's also worth noting, and these aren't exclusive, but one one of the most common ways it also comes is through the consequences of our actions. You know, as Christians, we sort of wrap our arms around the idea that we're saved by grace, and that's absolutely true. We have resurrection life, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. He saves us completely by grace. It's a gift, Ephesians says, right? And so sometimes we go, oh, you know, my sins are all forgiven, and it doesn't really matter what I do. But that, but that isn't strictly true. If you look at the story in Samuel about uh, David's, you know, David's betrayal of Uriah and his adultery with Bathsheba, when the prophet Nathan comes to David, he says, look, your sin is forgiven by God, but there are still consequences of your choices, there are still consequences of your choices. I think sometimes we sort of assume that God not only forgives our sin and gives us resurrection life, but that he's gonna evaporate or take away all the temporal consequences. That isn't true. If you're embezzling money today from your business, the reality is that that embezzlement or that stealing, that theft, if God has saved you from your sin, that sin has been paid. God, Jesus pays for our sin past, present, and future. There is no eternal consequence for that embezzlement, but there are temporal consequences, right? the likelihood is you're probably going to get fired from your job and you probably spend some time in jail, right? God's not going to take those temporal consequences away because those temporal consequences of your foolish choices and my foolish choices, they shape me. They refine me. God disciplines us through a variety of things. The question for us is how are we going to respond to that? Do we respond with self-pity and sorrow? Do we respond with plugged ears and ambivalence? Do we respond with anger and rebellion? Or can we get our arms around this discipline of God, this reshaping that God does in our lives because of his affection? Can we get our arms around it and be grateful? Be grateful to a God who's demonstrating that we are his sons and his daughters. And the proof of that sonship is that he cares enough to speak into our lives. I get that this is hard for some of us, right? I I know that there are some of you sitting in the room that any time a passage talks about fathers or mothers, there's kind of a disconnect because maybe your earthly parents aren't that great, right? I know that for me, when I read a text like Hebrews 12 and it says things like this, look at verse, um, verse seven and following, it says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, I could say mine, my dad left when I was 13, right? What son in there is there whose father doesn't discipline him? Well, when you're talking about fathers, there's a little bit of a disconnect and a difficulty for me because my dad bailed, right? So then it says, if you're, left, oh, excuse me, um, if you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Well, I, I would guess that there are probably many of us in the room that when you think about your earthly father, you, you weren't disciplined by them because they left, Or maybe you were abused by them. Or maybe you were hurt. Or maybe you were beat up. I think for many of us, when we try and think about the love of God the Father and we sort of equate it with the love of our earthly fathers, there's a disconnect and almost a frustration. Like we kind of, it doesn't compute because you don't necessarily know the love of a human father. Because maybe your dad split, or maybe he beat you up, or maybe there was abuse in your home. And it might not be your dad, it could be your mom. I mean, we all sort of suffer under the consequences of the fact that our human interactions are all tempered by brokenness and sin. But that's why the text is really clear to say, it says in verse 10, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. That as it seemed best to them is really important. If you're here today and the love of a father the discipline of a loving father, the discipline that comes from affection feels foreign to you? Well, the the pickle could be that you're associating with with the love of your human parents and the love of your human parents, no matter how good or bad they were, was broken. Their parenting, and here's the deal, my parenting of my kids today is as it seems best to me. That's all I got. It's all I can bring to the table. My parenting is as it seems best to me. And many times, that parenting is wrong and flawed. And full of holes and things I don't see and places where I'm powerless. Our human parents disciplined us as seemed best to them. But look at what it says after this. They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Here it is. But he, that's God, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. The difference between my earthly parents and my heavenly father is that his love for me is perfect his knowledge of me is perfect. His hopes for me are perfect. And his discipline of me is perfect. When he disciplines us, he disciplines us perfectly for our good. In every case, he never messes that up. So what I want you to hear this morning is that there is no case in the scriptures of God disciplining his children, disciplining his children in wrath. He doesn't do that. There is no context in which God disciplines his children in wrath. He disciplines them in love. Now, we do see God's wrath in the Scripture, but not for the family. He never disciplines his children in wrath. We don't see any instance of God abusing his children. We see no instance of God abandoning his children. We see no instances of God coming back and saying, eh, I I probably could have done that a little bit better. You want to know why? Because God is perfect and holy And his discipline and his love, his affection, his hopes and dreams for us are perfect also. So if you're here today and and your human parentage is sort of a hurdle for you, the way it informs this idea of God as a father, it sort of messes that up. The good news is that no matter how flawed your parents were, no matter how many mistakes they made, your heavenly father loves you perfectly and he disciplines you for your perfect good. That you would share in His holiness. What is the byproduct of this, uh, this endurance? What's the byproduct of this discipline? Well, the text gives us a couple of things. The first one we've already talked about. One of the byproducts of this discipline of God is that it is a proof of sonship and His love. It's proof of daughtership and His love. If you're wondering if you're a child of God, His sonship is the, is the badge of honor. But it also proves His affection for you. Have you ever looked into the mirror and thought, does God love me? Why would He love me? I'm a mess. I do all kinds of stupid stuff. I keep doing the same sins I wish I wouldn't do. Does, can he love me? Well, the presence of God's discipline is also, according to Hebrews 12, proof, irrefutable proof of his affection for you, his love for you. So what is the byproduct of this discipline? It's, it's that proof of sonship and daughtership, proof of his love. It also talks about the fact that while, uh, while the discipline of human fathers was, was of some value, it says in verse nine, besides, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live one of the byproducts of this discipline and enduring in it of remembering this exhortation that treats us as sons is life the life that God built us for the life that God prepared for us in advance a life of communion with him is a byproduct of being shaped being conformed to his image and glorifying him not only that, we get to participate in his holiness, which we read there in verse 10. And then look at verse 11. It says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. I would guess that when we read the opening text, right? Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, we read at the beginning, probably none of us were thinking about the peaceful fruit of righteousness, Right? When we think about discipline, a lot of times, again, we're thinking about abuse or we're thinking about about pain and suffering. But what this says is that the discipline of God actually reaps a byproduct of peace. It reaps a byproduct of peace as we are conformed to the righteousness of God, that it actually doesn't make us anxious. We don't have to be anxious about God's discipline. We don't have to be nervous or fearful about it. But the more that we surrender our lives to the loving discipline of our good, perfect Father... The more that we are made righteous, sanctified, right, and then there's a peace that comes from going, hey, you know what? I'm on this course that God has placed me on, and along the way, he's going to let me know where there are places that need to be corrected. He's going to let me know the places where I need to adjust. The reality is for us this morning that just because your life is hard doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong, Just because your life is hard doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. It might be that God is trying to shape you, that God is redeeming those circumstances. And the way we determine that, again, is by being in his word, being rooted in community, listening to his spirit. Church, don't forget the exhortation that speaks to you as sons and daughters. The Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastises everyone that he receives as a son. It's proof of your sonship and your daughtership that God loves you enough to correct the course you're on. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would help us to be able to discern where your correction is, to be able to discern in our lives where it is that you're calling us and that you're compelling us, the ways in which you're exhorting us to change, and that we wouldn't respond to your discipline with anger or with self-pity or with ambivalence, but that we would respond with gratitude and love, knowing that your concern for us is what has produced that correction. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.